So thank you very much indeed, everybody. Um, firstly, this is a, a, a fantastic uh, privilege for me personally to be able to moderate on this exceptionally important panel, um, which is uh, basically looking at the beginning of the longer journey. So the targets, challenges, and strategies associated with reducing the greenhouse gas emissions and decarbonization associated with the targets of 2030 and 2050. Um, so a special thank you to Nicholas for, for uh, allowing us to do this. So firstly, before I introduce my uh, distinguished panel on my left-hand side here, um, basically, as we all know, that shipping uh, as a cycle exists in uh, boom and bust, driven by market conditions which are often outside of our control. This means that the industry traditionally has been generally reactive, dealing with immediate cost and supply pressures, which is something that we saw very clearly in the earlier panels on changing the landscape of shipping. This can inhibit our ability to plan ahead. The result is that the industry tends to wait for regulation rather than taking the initiative on future challenges and addressing those. This can leave our industry exposed to public criticism and missing opportunities for greater progress. By exploring the role of shipping in a broader, sustainable future, bringing in wider perspectives and supporting practical steps to get there, this cycle can be broken as a partnership. The industry needs to be more transparent, more active on the global stage, and better incentivized to take sustainability beyond compliance. We're witnessing elements of this within the current drive for decarbonization, from the introduction of the Poseidon Principles, which is where we have seen uh, a drive towards transparency, responsibility, and accountability within the MRV and DCS reporting to the banks. And in addition, we've also seen it in September's launch of Getting to Zero Coalition. The International Maritime Organization's initial GHG strategy, unveiled in 2018, sets a level of ambition of at least 50% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2050. And Lloyd's Register's study with UMass indicates that zero emission vessels need to be entering the fleet by 2030 if this goal is to be met. The IMO decision in April 2018 was a turning point for the industry, and decarbonization has since dominated headlines and industry discussions across the world, ever since with future fuels and their wide-scale adoption coming under scrutiny from a broad range of stakeholders. Ship owners clearly need the confidence to invest in ships and require certainty around the existence of infrastructure that will support the use of future fuels. These are seeking, or they are seeking, a better understanding about who will sell them the fuels, their availability and their pricing, as discussed within the last panel. And there are also safety issues to be addressed with some of the proposals that are being put forward for alternative energy sources. In the decade ahead, Lloyd's Register and the other classification societies will support the shipping industry as it seeks to improve its operational and technical energy efficiency in the short term whilst enabling the transition to full decarbonization by moving to zero carbon fuels and new propulsion solutions, assuring and building resilient supply chains, all whilst ensuring enhanced safety standards. Decarbonization clearly heralds huge opportunity for us in the maritime industry if the hurdles challenging its advance can be addressed. Today we're here to look at the targets, the challenges and the strategies governing the decarbonization road ahead with some of the industry leading players. So joining me today is Mr. Andrew Garcia, who is the president of Goodbulk, Dr. George Pateras, who is the president of the Hellenic Chamber of Shipping, 
Esmond Poulsen, who is the chairman of the International Chamber of Shipping and also the executive chairman on NSL PTE Limited. Kostas Vlakos, who is the chief operating officer at Lasco Marine Management. And Stavros Hatsigoris, who is the CEO of Maritime Gas uh, Incorporated. So, gents, let's get going. Firstly, Stavros, um, let's benchmark this. So, what have we achieved in the industry so far? What is the reduction of greenhouse gases in 2018-2019 in comparison with the 2008 levels? Okay. Uh, as you said, uh, Andy, the, the start of the benchmarking is 2008. Uh, 2008 was a high market uh, year. We had vessels trading at higher speeds. And the numbers that IMO have um, put on the table uh, were uh, 921 million tons for greenhouse emissions and uh, 41.9 trillion ton miles. If you do the mathematics, this will come out to about 22 grams per, per ton mile. Uh, the last, uh, let's say, legitimate uh, study that uh, we have seen is for 2015. 2015, we had uh, um, 2015, we had 53.3 trillion miles and 810 million tons of greenhouse gases. Uh, this, if you do the mathematics again, will go to a number of 15.2 grams per, per ton mile. The IMO requirements for carbon intensity is 60% of the 22 for 2030. This is 13.2 grams per ton mile and 30% of 2022, i.e. 6.6 grams per ton mile for 2050. So the shipping industry is doing enough for the time being. We have a reduction of uh, approximately uh, 30% uh, seven years before the, sorry, ten years before the target of uh, 2030. Um, if we look at uh, what will happen further, 2050, 2050 we will have a population growth of about 30%. The population will grow to about 9.7 billion people. We will have an estimated uh, GDP growth of around 150% for the 9.7 billion population, and uh, from brokers' estimates, and brokers' estimates are, are always optimistic, uh, for easily to understand reasons, easy to understand reasons, uh, we will have a tone miles uh, increase of about 100%. Uh, this uh, splits uh, to the various sectors of the shipping industry, Crude carriers will go down by 2050. Uh, LNG will go a lot up. Container, ship, container shipping will go a lot up. And oil products, more or less, they see about 40% growth until 2030, and again 40% growth to 2050. So maybe what we are doing is not enough. And I don't feel that uh, the issue of zero emissions will not come back. We say. Uh, 40% by 2030, we say 70% by 2050, or 50% for the industry as a whole, but the numbers do not look good. And uh, uh, the discussion about uh, zero emissions, I think it will come back, it will be discussed again. 
and new targets will be set. If we talk about uh, the ADI, because this is one of the um, methods of regulating what the SIPs are doing, uh, the EDI is basically CO2 emissions divided by transport work. So if we see uh, bigger vessels, larger vessels, the EDI will go down. If we see more efficient uh, vessels or slower speed, the EDI will again go down. Uh, I asked one of my colleagues, actually Mr. Burbulis, who was a speaker before, to give me the estimated EDI for the Hellespont ULCCs, 450,000 tons vessels, that were delivered in 2003-2004. These vessels have a better EDI, around 2.17, uh, comparing with the requirement for a VLCC to be delivered next year, which is about 2.3. So size matters. What is the effect of the EDI? What is the calculated effect of the EDI? IMO have not done any work on this until now. They are commissioning a study which will be ready next year. But Norway have, done, uh, have estimated what the effects are. And what they say is 25% until 2025 and 35% from 2025 onwards. But it will stay there because the EDI requirements stop at this point. Uh, sorry for flooding you with numbers, but this is about what I had to say. Thank you very much indeed, and I think it's useful to have those numbers in the context because it sets the reality of that these aspirations, when they become targets, cannot be a status quo. This is something that we need to start planning for now. So th thank you for that. So Costas, um, as we're heading towards the first targets of the shipping ambitions, which is the reduction of the carbon intensity by 40% in comparison to those 2008 levels that, that Stavros has shared with us, what do you believe are the technologies um, that should be applied in the ship design and equipment that will ensure the achievement of these targets? Uh, thank you, Andy, for this uh, interesting question. I believe that uh, the first ambition is a very high ambition and uh, there is an, a lot of effort in order to be achieved. Today, I believe that shipping decarbonization is of course. Why that? Because the only changes that have been made up to this point is because of the needs of the energy design index, which refers only to the new building vessels. So I'm referring to changes that have uh, uh, been made because of the general flow devices fitted before or after the propeller, the hull form optimization by some shipyards, the CFD refinement of bow and stem, and uh, the reduction in propeller RPM uh, with increase in diameter of the propeller. With these changes, we have achieved 18% reduction in the design index, which of course doesn't mean that we have achieved 18% reduction in the greenhouse uh, emissions because it's different the method that we count the two different things. The available achievable savings by using the same conventional measures, it is only 6% based on a study that has been made by Herbert Engineering on behalf of Intertanko, they have given the details that only 6% uh, 
uh, we can achieve as an improvement if we continue to apply conventional method. So it is obvious based on that, that in order to achieve the target, the target additional measures are required. And when we say additional uh, measures, we may refer to switching to alternative fuels, which is the first option that might be applied immediately, at least to the new building vessels. And we have seen that up until to now, 6% of the new building have applied this method. The speed reduction is also clearly an option, a very vital option, by reducing the speed by one notch in a very large crude carrier, we can achieve a reduction by 11% of the EDI. And if we talk about two knots, we'll see that the reduction is almost 70%. Of course, additional technologies as supplementary me measures, it is necessary to be applied along with the dual fuel engines that use alternative fuels. Uh, I'm referring, to, for instance, to wind assistant propulsion systems, to the volatile organic compounds compressors that may be applied in oil tankers only, to the air lubricating system that can be partly be applied under certain conditions. The target is very difficult to be achieved because based on what we have said until now, no measure is applied to existing vessels. And when I'm saying existing vessel, I'm referring to vessels built before 2013, which is the date that the EDI is applied for uh, the new building vessels. The majority of the existing ships are not covered by the EDI. I believe that uh, there is a very big, uh, large number of ships uh, that are going to 2030 without any measure to have been applied or to be applied on these vessels. So a technical approach, my personal opinion, is uh, necessary in order to improve the operational efficiency of this existing vessel. It is necessary to have a fair treatment. The measures that will be taken will be owner's option and decision. There is a need to change the regulations. And personally, I believe that a new index must be applied for existing vessels as it is the index that it is applied with, uh, to, to new buildings. Maybe the name is not EDI. Maybe the name is EXI, which refers to existing ships. But of course, the options that uh, the owners may have to this direction is either replacement of the existing tonnage with a new, to change or modify existing vessels with uh, dual fuel using alternative fuels, and of course, to be regulated that the vessels are operating at uh, the best speed, which is the operational speed based on the operational profile, profile of each one vessel, but this operational speed will be connected with the soft engine power limitation, except of the cases of emergency. Thank you very much indeed, Costas. I love the idea of the uh, EEXI as opposed to the EDI, which will, will actually sort of give it the, the, the 
kudos and the, let's say, the gravitas that it needs for the challenge that we have ahead. So, so Andrew, moving on, um, technology as we've heard, so with ballast water and um, you know scrubbers, although I promised I wouldn't mention scrubbers in this panel, otherwise we'd pay a euro every time we did, but uh, are a costly exercise for, for our, um, you know, our stakeholders. So looking at the commercial reality of decarbonisation, what's the incentive of an owner to invest in this technology ahead of the regulation? Um. So it's been said before during today's conference that early movers on a technology basis in shipping are often punished. Um, and when you look at you know, investing in assets that have 25 to 30 year lives um, during a very quickly evolving technology front and a very quickly evolving um, geopolitical front, where during the type, time life of your asset, you might expect the political regimes and administrations and the various governments to turn over four to five times during the useful life of that asset, it's very hard to budget. Um, historically, ship owners have been incentivized to invest in ships and in shipping technology and those that increase you know, both the um, efficiency of those technologies and the environmental friendliness of them when those changes resulted in increased fuel efficiency in the vessels. And up until very recently, most of the increases that we've seen that have resulted in decreased CO2 emissions and more environmentally friendly ships have been focused mostly on hull efficiencies and other types of fuel efficiencies. And therefore, there has been a direct incentive for owners to invest in these. It's pretty easy for a lot of us to forget. Um, I come from the financial background, but back in the early 2010s, when Robert Bugby was raising money on Wall Street, the ECHO didn't stand for ecological, it stand for economic, right, <laughs> in these vessels. Um, with IMO 2020, you know, we've seen incentive for owners and investors to invest in the technology, not for environmental gains, but because during the way that the IMO put it in place, with the selection or the optionality between burning a compliant fuel, the pricing of which was misunderstood, not fully understood at the time, or putting on an abatement process or an exhaust, exhaust, gas, exhaust gas scrubber system, um, there became an economic environmental arbitrage opportunity that many financial investors and ship owners have been in, interested in seeing if there's a way to get a higher return on that investment than they would get being in the market. And so from that standpoint, there has been arguably at the detriment of capital expenditure and land-based desulfurization processes, um, capital available to fund those investments. Now as we look forward towards 2030 and 2050, the argument becomes a little bit more difficult. A, we don't have the guidance of really solid understandings and rules as to what the tests will be. Already when you look at the Poseidon principles, they point out the differences between the IMO 2050 um, guidelines and, and goals on an absolute basis versus the incremental tests of 2030 and 2050 and making those align and how those adjustments will have to happen. And also, honestly, the, the technology isn't 100% where it needs to be today to be able to know that you're building a ship that will meet in the 20, 2040 to 2050 time range those, those environmental regulations that will be in place. Um, so with that said, the question becomes much more difficult. Now, for those charters who are looking to work with owners in order to incentivize them to own these assets, there are still options available to them. And you're seeing it with people who are thought leaders in the, place, in the space, such as in our space, like um, uh, Drybulk, such as BHP, who for various reasons are focused on coming up with alternative fuel plans, 
where you, work, where you can work with owners and your partners to have longer term charters at rates that help them de-risk their investments on a much quicker process than they may have in the past. Um, we may also see as we move forward different types of option structures where charters who are looking to take on some of that residual value risk may, take a may create options where the shared risk of the outdating of that technology exists with both of them. But from a pure economic standpoint as an owner, unless you have somebody who is looking to employ that asset on a long-term basis and share the risk with you, it's very difficult at this point to make long-term capital investments in these types of assets until we have a clearer view on what the future will hold. Andrew, thank you. So I think, you know, we heard the word network earlier, which I think is still very relevant now, which is we have to change some of those traditional relationships that we've had within the stakeholder community to ensure that this is something that we can unlock the potential of moving forward on this pathway. Um, so, so Esben, um, to you, and I know you've been busy this week, so thank you very much indeed for joining us today. I'm not saying that the others haven't been busy, but uh, what are your key concerns around future fuels, um, and do you have any technology preferences on future fuel options? Thank you, Andy, um, and good afternoon. Uh, I, I think um, having just listened to Stavros and Costas, and, and Andrew for that matter, uh, I, am, um, I, I would be loath to, to pretend in any way to be an expert uh, on, on certainly on preferences. I mean, what I can say is that we all know about the, the, the possibilities, be it hydrogen, ammonia, battery technologies, green methanol, and so on. We know that they're there. We know that people, uh, many people are ex experimenting with these, but we also know that, that there is no conclusion at, at this point. In fact, probably far from it. Um, I had a, a whole lot of statistics to rattle off as well, but I've been beaten to it by my, by my fellow panelists, so in the interest of, of not overdoing it, I, I, I will mention one thing, though, that many in this audience would have probably read the other day the headline uh, that Clarkson's research say that um, the fleet today is 60% larger than it was in 2008 and is emitting 18% less CO2. Um, I, I think this may go contrary to what um, Stavros has already said, but it's, as a headline, I would suggest that, that this is a, a positive thing, and certainly from an ICS point of view, I would, I would highlight a statistic like that because it, I think it shows, beyond any doubt, that the, that the steps that we have taken through EEDI and, and other measures uh, have been quite successful to date. Not successful enough, but, but, but something has happened, and, and I think that we as an industry should have a little bit of, of credit for that. We can pat ourselves a little bit on the back for having, having done this. I mean, it's fine to say that the, the cost of fuel is the single biggest expense that a ship owner has, and therefore it's in our self-interest. But I genuinely believe that, that, that owners also want to join this, this uh, fight for, to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. And I think that the shipping industry is a very responsible one uh, and one that is committed to, to playing its part. But we, we also have to point out that others uh, in, in our industry have to play their part too, be it shipyards or be it engine manufacturers and be it governments. Um, it's fine for IMO to dictate all kinds of things to the industry and then leave us to, to get on with it. But this is a, this is a joint effort. And I think the sooner governments understand this, the better off we're all going to be. And in this regard, I, for one, am a proponent of the, what we, we call the tripartite group, which meets once a year between shipyards, uh, owners, associations like ourselves and others, um, and the engine manufacturers. And these meetings can often be a lot of hot air, 
But I think with the expectation that society has on us now, collectively, uh, the time for past is past for hot air, and it's time to really get on with things. We all know about the uh, the 2050 uh, goal. This has been um, expressed. 90% is in, it, it equates to a 90% efficiency improvement by 2050. That's a very very tall order. Um, and, I, and we in ICS believe that one of the ways we can contribute to this um, is, to, is to formulate a, a roadmap whereby a, an R&D fund of a significant size can be set up. We're not there yet because there are many views like everything else on this issue, but we are looking at this very seriously. And, and it is one way where we will try to, uh, we will try to harness all the energy and all the 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 um, means of all the stakeholders towards this goal. I personally think, and I'm probably not allowed to say this with my ICS hat on, or otherwise I'll get lots of emails tomorrow to saying why did you say that? But I'll say it anyway, and that is that I strongly believe in the ingenuity of mankind, and I personally have no doubt that one way or the other, be it one of the um, one of the um, uh, 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 low carbon or one of the um, propulsion um, ammonia battery etc that I mentioned at the outset whether it's one of these a combination thereof or something that we can't even see today I am actually um, I'm actually very very uh, confident that, that we will get there not without a very hard time but I think I think it's doable um, and um, we for one in, in ICS and I think our fellow associations will play our part to this end. Thank you. Esben, thank you very much indeed. I'm cl clearly reiterating, and I think very strongly, you know, the importance of the stakeholder community working together, and this isn't about single entities. Um, so, Dr. Pateras, um, what other measures or options do we have available to us in, in your view? Thank you very much, Andrew, and thank you very much to being on such a distinguished panel. I think we've got a lot, fair amount of options that we can use. And there is, I, I feel that we're sort of being picked on. The, the ship is a very small part of the um, pollution chain in um, transportation of all, all sorts of goods. But regardless of that, we have all these options. I think we should concentrate on those rather than just scream about decarbonization. We must give people an option. So we've got hydrogen, and we've got to develop hydrogen, the production of hydrogen from seawater using solar power. There is proof of concept already at the beginning of the summer from Caltech. We should invest money in that. Ammonia. Let's not create more CO2 producing ammonia by using a coal-fired power station to produce the ammonia. That's another major problem that we're facing. LNG, a great gas, but 78% methane. Yes, it's more, it's more efficient in combustion because it's a short-chain hydrocarbon, but it still produces greenhouse gases if it leaks because it's what, between 23 and 87 percent um, worse than CO2. So we've got to look at SNG national gas, a gas which is being used today in the automotive industry, which is really very good. Another project which I think I'm very much behind is superconductivity at room temperature. We need to do more research on this. This will improve the efficiency of our batteries immensely. And don't forget, one of the largest polluters of all is sulfur hexafluoride, a gas which is used in wind energy, a gas which is used in 
generators, a gas which is used in battery production because it is the only insulating fireproof gas available today in the industry, which is 23,500 times worse than CO2. So we're being a little bit hypocritical when we say, let's go and put a, a wind generator when a few grams of, and they use copious amounts of this gas, are far worse than if we'd put a big old stinking diesel generator. So we must really be very careful. That's all I have to say. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much indeed, George. So, so um, Stavros, building off that, I think, basically, in terms of some of the uncertainty, um, in terms of some of the lack of financing or financial solutions, and in terms of some of the lack of certainty around the technical solutions, some people are saying that if you order a ship today, it's going to be out of date and potentially obsolete um, by the time these regulations come into place. So, so how, how would you respond to that? First of all, I strongly disagree with the statement that says that today we're, we are accepting obsolete vessels. Uh, as mentioned already by most of the speakers, uh, the, we are doing our best to reduce, uh, to, to improve the efficiency of the vessels, and we have achieved a lot. As I said before, 2015, we were at 15.2 grams per ton mile, and the requirement for 2030 uh, is 13.2. Is uh, we are getting uh, delivery of uh, LNG vessels today that are performing 40% better than the required EDI. So technically, these vessels, they meet the 2030 carbon intensity requirements. The, uh, the, the consumption of BLCCs has gone down 30% over the past five, six years, and actually 2014-15 are the years during which we started moving, or the industry started moving. And uh, therefore, I, I think that, and by the way, ships uh, live, if we talk about conventional ships, they live for whatever, 18 to 22 years, 23 years. Recently, we had seen during the container market uh, down uh, difficult times, we saw container vessels being scrapped at the age of 13, 14. So ships have to be renewed uh, in any case. Uh, SIPs that were delivered in 2013, as Costas mentioned before, before the, the introduction of PEDI, they will be scrapped by 2033 if they live for 20 years. So I don't see a serious problem there. Uh, it is, as I mentioned before, I'm not expecting that the, the decarbonization requirements we say will stay at 70%. I think soon we will go for zero emissions. Uh, what we have to do is to work with uh, shipyards, to work with administrations, to work with oil majors, uh, to work with charterers, if they are not oil majors, uh, to see what can be done and what kind of novel designs can be de de developed by 2024, 2025, and delivered by 2027, 2028. This is the period that I see critical. And what I am asking our owners to do is, please, stop ordering at 2022, stay there for two, three years, and see what kind of ships designs will be available uh, after that. Uh, we have recently seen, I mean, it is in the internet, a design developed by Osimo Shipyard in Japan. It's a joint project between uh, uh, General Electric, uh, uh, Osima, DNVGL, and Varsila. Uh, this vessel that is equipped with uh, LNG as fuel, batteries, solar panels, and a small sail forward, and I love sails, 
uh, produces a reduction in greenhouse emissions by about 44%. This, this is the estimated number. But if you compare the price of this vessel with the price of a conventional, let's say, Supramax today, the cost is 2.4 times up. So the multi-million dollar question is who is going to cover these costs? And there will be a lot of additional cost because of the new technologies. Thank you, Stavros. I, I may be familiar with that job from a previous incarnation, but um, thank you. Uh, so Costas, uh, other stakeholders within the community, clearly ship designers and ship yards. What, what role do you think they're currently playing and, and should they be playing um, in terms of the opportunities for uh, carbon zero tonnage? Uh, thank you, Adi. I don't think that currently the shipyards, uh, they do a lot to provide opportunities uh, for potential ship owners to have a good access to the carbon zero tonnage. But uh, I believe uh, there are a lot of things that they should do in order to achieve that. Uh, they have to propose to the owners feasible, technical, mature, and reliable uh, solutions that are applied to seagoing vessels. They have to open a dialogue with uh, ship owners and ship operators, presenting to them their new design or their new developments, and of course to ask the opinion of the operators uh, for this feasibility study that they have made, because the perspective that the operators are looking to the design is completely different to the perspective that CPRs today look at this. There are a lot of shortages in their design. The Technology needs a time in order to be developed. The widely applied technology today, the most widely applied technology today is the LNG dual fuel technology, which took, however, almost 20 years to be at the position that today this technology it is. And we have more than 2,500 uh, main engines working with uh, dual fuel LNG and more than 26 million hours running uh, these uh, main engines at sea. I, I think that the owners and the operators, they are not looking only to, only to a solution that will reduce 40% or 100% the greenhouse uh, emissions. They are looking also that the proposal that will uh, recommended will not increase, on the other hand, the local emissions, which is the NOx and CO2, uh, SOx emissions, which uh, many times this is the proposal that uh, is given by the designers and uh, the shipbuilders. I believe that uh, another one very important thing is that the owners are not looking only to the reduction of greenhouse emissions, which is a target and it is an ambition, but of course for a technical mature solution that will bring a reduction to the operating cost through reduced consumption, consumables, spare parts, and maintenance. In summary, I believe that they should propose technical mature solutions, a well-established infrastructure, fuel availability for the solution that they propose, or rules, at the IMO level, class level, regional and national requirements, to see what is the cost per, uh, <clears throat> per unit of produced power, and of course to see the, uh, the intensity of the energy of the proposed solution. 
what we are looking from the CPR, CPR today is a safe, well-regulated solution, environmental and economical sustainable. This is what we are looking for. Thank you, Costas. Uh, and very quickly, I think, um, Dr. Pateras, in terms of what are the major short-term or short-time measures that are being discussed within IMO at the moment that are going to help us get some clarity around some of these issues? A, a very um, touchy subject. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, as, uh, so when, I, when, I, when I'm wearing my uh, Hellenic chamber hat, Patrick, I've got to be very careful how I reply to this one. Um, obviously, LNG is a, a, a very good short-term measure. It has a far more efficient combustion than um, fuel oil. So by being more efficient, there's less NOx, which is a, something that we're all looking at, looking at doing. So for me, efficiency of combustion and efficiency of the actual ship, the ship that you have, if you can improve the combustion and if you can improve the efficiency of the hull by keeping it clean, keeping the propeller clean, you're making a major contribution dry docking more often, uh, sandblasting more often, those small measures which in the long run actually save you commercially actually help the environment. Of course, the, um, I believe that it's new ship design should have a common power management system and you just interchange the power source as technology develops. But the elephant in the room is always slow steaming. And it is a solution, it is a very good short-term measure it, in my opinion, we should stop calling it slow steaming because it isn't. And it's wrong to describe it in that way because it has a lot of negative connotations. We should call it speed optimization because every vessel has a different optimal speed to make, to make the voyage. Other vessels need to be faster. Others can be slower, not need to be. So you can have a, a sectorial speed optimization, which also depends on weather and depends on the ship design. If you know you've got a gale ahead of you, yes, speed up to avoid it, because if you keep slow steaming, you're going to actually go into the gale and burn more steam or require more uh, energy to overcome it. So I think the most important one, we've got to find a way of making speed optimization our most um, our most useful short-term measure. Thank you. Uh, it's going to lead nicely into the next panel for sure. But I think um, in, in terms of optimized speed, I think optimized operations as well, if we broaden it out. And that optimized speed is one element of overall optimized operations. And where do we run diesels on the specific fuel curves, for example? So look, um, in, in summary, um, we have some challenges. That's clear. Um, I think uh, to, to Esmond's point, you know, it's, it's uh, a pride within the maritime industry that will take on these challenges and continue to deliver against them, um, even with the uncertainty that we have in front of us. I think we do need clarity, we need standards, and we need investment from research and development, for example, to look at some of these new technologies. But I think the resounding note is that we need to do this collaboratively and across a different stakeholder um, engagement sort of methodology than the one we have today. So with that, I'm going to say please join me in saying thank you very much indeed to the panelists. Thank you.